0: Well, stories that are resolved halfway can be a bit heartbreaking. Halfway resolution means things are, are looking up for a while and are hopeful. There's some initial promise of, of rescue or deliverance only to fall back into the problem again. I think of those homemaker stories um, that you may have read about. This is several years ago, I, I guess, uh, now, <laughs> feels recent to me, but um, where these, these families who are in desperate need, some group would come in and they would uh, refurbish or kind of build a whole brand new house that perfectly suits their needs for their, whatever the challenges that they were facing, and then the TV show's over and then the property tax bill comes, Right? And the maintenance of those homes come, and so several of those families who initially were uh, seemingly blessed by uh, this situation and were blessed by it, in the end, had to leave those homes and give them up and sell them, and uh, maybe hopefully make a little bit of money. Um, But that's what I'm talking about: halfway resolution, partial resolution. You know, society's rescue attempts can come up short, and sometimes tragically so. If you think about. Prison rehabilitation, for example. A 2012 Innocence Project study said that more than 65% of inmates in California returned to prison within a three year period. I mean, picture what that's like. You've been behind bars for several years, and finally, you have your freedom. Uh, you get to choose where and when and what to eat. You get to choose what clothes to put on and what to wear and how that works. You get to be around people you want to be around. You can have privacy. And a lot of different inmates report just feeling overwhelmed when they're released uh, from prison with all the freedom that's in front of them. They'd hoped for that day for so long, right, living on the outside, and it's all just a little bit disappointing. And they had spent so much time dreaming about what it would be like to be free of prison that... Maybe they hadn't thought much about what to use their freedom for. And so in too many cases, they end up back in uh, the bondage or the slavery that, you know, that they were in before. Well, last week, if you remember, we learned that God's grace breaks the ruling power of sin by uniting us to Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? Paul says that those who are in Christ, they have died to sin. And that means that Christ's sacrificial death has definitively changed the nature of our relationship with sin. And by faith, we remember, we're united to Him, we are grouped with Him, and we have gone from contented slaves to freed sons and daughters. Death's grip died when the Son of God died, and we died with Him, Paul says in Romans 6. But this good news, it gets even better than that. We are not merely freed from something, we are freed to something as well. We don't find ourselves outside of the prison walls of sin, struggling to know what to do with this newfound freedom. We actually get hints from God's word that this saving work included more than merely freedom from slavery. There's something else included in it. And Paul hints at this earlier in Romans, I'll read just a few verses, in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, it says this, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, hint at this greater sense of salvation. It says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Verse 17 in chapter 5. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, speaking of Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death... Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear how the promise and the hope of this alternative righteousness that Paul has been talking about is greater than just merely being freed from slavery? We're being freed for a purpose, we're being freed to eternal life, to something far bigger. And being just freed from sin. There's a positive sense to this gospel that we're going to talk about today. So you aren't just spared from something terrible. You're included in something glorious. If you remember, when we are united to Christ, we do experience crucifixion, right? In a sense. Our old selves die with him. This is a, both a one time thing and an ongoing reality. We're crucified with Christ. And we feel that crucifixion as, as the Holy Spirit convicts us and reforms us and changes us. And even though we're not enslaved to sin, sometimes we volunteer for it, don't we? But we're going to learn this morning that our union with Christ means more than merely being crucified with Him, it means. Being raised with him as well. Here's the point of this morning. God's reign of grace increasingly and finally replaces the presence of sin with life through our union with the resurrected Christ. God's reign of grace increasingly and finally replaces the presence of sin with life through our union with the resurrected Christ. If you're able, uh, please stand and we'll read our portion of Scripture again, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, grab some in the lobby and make sure uh, that what is being said here is in alignment with what God says in His Word. Here's what God's Word says to us. "'What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound?' And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to hit three things this morning, and the second two are going to have some implications that we'll spell out as we go. First, we're going to look at this reign of grace. It's called the reign of grace. And then we'll take the little phrase in the, the summary sentence there, increasingly and finally, and have that be our outline. Increasingly resurrected and then finally resurrected. So first, the reign of grace. You know, the the, the popular idea or cultural sense of freedom in our day uh, fails because it lacks a worthy goal. It lacks a worthy goal. There's a lot of talk about liberation and defending freedom and autonomy, whether it's political freedom, right, the right to rule yourself, whether it's sexual freedom, the right to determine your gender or sexual preference, or religious freedom, the right to worship as you see fit. But all those senses of freedom, if you peel back that secular sense of freedom, you'll find that it lacks direction. I'm all for freedom, but freedom is wasted if it's not used to serve a larger purpose. So, there are many who push for political freedom, right? Who want to use that freedom to take advantage of people through just a new form, a new oppressive form of government. right? So, you'll, you'll find if you look through history, most tyrants have given great spe- speeches about being freed from the former uh, administration and, and being free of them only to enslave those same people under a new administration. They advocate for freedom to serve their own agenda. Or sexual freedoms in our day are defined in terms of the self, that you define you, you are free to be who you want to be. But what does that personal freedom serve? Is our sexuality really only about ourselves? Sexuality serves a larger purpose than that, and so the existence of our society actually depends on our view of sexuality. Our sexual freedoms intersect with other people's freedoms, for example, as we've found in culture all the time. It intersects with the good of society, and so there's more to consider than merely self. I think you could also argue that the advocacy of sexual freedoms have done a lot of harm whether it's the rise of a hyper-sexualized culture or the confusion that exists amongst the coming generation. Again, what are the sexual freedoms and pressing that issue? What is, it, what is that for? What's that larger goal that's being served by it? Or religious freedom. Religious freedom is wasted if it doesn't result in the worship of the one true God, Right? And I'm all for fighting for the freedom of all people to worship who they desire, but I also must simultaneously strive for more than that, right? I want that freedom to be used to to lead a person to be introduced to the glorious God of the Bible. So I don't want freedom for freedom's sake. Freedom has a purpose and a goal. Romans 6 verses 20 and 21 say this. It kind of captures this idea this way. Paul says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What's the end result? He says, the end of those things is death. So there's a purpose to freedom. He's saying, that didn't yield anything. That kind of freedom being used in that way wasn't purposeful. So freedoms have a larger goal, and as Christians, we believe the larger purpose of freedom is directed by God's word and by God's will. So freedom from sin slavery has a larger goal of walking with God in this reign of righteousness. Look at how Paul described it. you remember how he described it in verse 17 in chapter 5? If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It talked again about reign in verse 21 of chapter 5. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. So Paul is explaining that even though you're freed from sin, you're still under a reign. You're still under the control of someone. You're still, There's still a master. And who is that master? We find in chapter 6, verse 18 and 22 kind of spell this out. It says, Paul says, "...having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." Or in verse 22, "...but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life." So, freedom is not for the purpose of Freedom. Freedom from sin is for the purpose of serving and loving and obeying and treasuring God. That's what it's for. So if we just said you're free from sin and that's it, that would not be the full gospel. Because there's more that God wants to give us. We'll look at more of the slavery idea next week, but we can summarize it to say that we're not free from slavery, we're free from slavery to sin, and now... We're invited to be slaves to Christ, and that leads to righteousness and eternal life. So, there is still a reign, there is still a master, there is still someone over us, and that's a good thing, okay? I'll say that to Americans again, that's a good thing, (laughs) that we have a master over us when it's Jesus Christ. So, let's see how this attachment to Jesus and his resurrection under this reign of grace replaces... The presence of sin with life and righteousness. That was, I wanted to just clarify, we're still under a reign. But what does that reign do? Well, we are increasingly resurrected. It's our second point. And you think, that makes no sense. Increasingly resurrected. When you th- when we talk about being attached to Jesus and united with him and being raised with him, our mind immediately goes to the end, which is true and good, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the interesting things about this text is it teases out some implications of being attached to Jesus' resurrection here and now in how we live in an increasing fashion, you could say. Notice the tenses of the words and the little words in these verses that really matter. In verse 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. See how it's all past tense? And you think, well, why were we buried with him? What was the purpose of doing that? It goes on and it says, in order that. Okay, so now this is a purpose, this is why we were buried with him. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Again, that's a past thing. Then it says, what was the purpose of all that bearing with him in baptism? We too might walk. It's in the subject, subjunctive sense, uh, tense, which kind of leaves it open as a possibility in the future. That we might walk. And newness of life. All these things happen in the past that we might walk in this newness of life. Look at verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him past in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you see how those are a little more present and future oriented? Look at verse 18 of chapter six. Having been set free from sin, have become present slaves of righteousness. Verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves. You see, it's it's current, it's present. So there's this, there's this connection between attaching ourselves to Jesus. There's a historical event that occurred that definitively changed our relationship with sin. But there are all kinds of implications for like tomorrow, right now, because of this resurrection. It's not just a future-oriented thing. There is a real-time experience to the reality that a man was resurrected. Day in, day out, proof. That the power of sin has been broken. That we see and experience and we see in the lives of other people. I was talking with someone last week how God has come in and definitively broken their anger issue. Broken it. And I'm thinking about this text. I'm thinking about what we're talking about. And I'm saying that is proof of resurrection. Right? Right? right there. That's proof that there's power in this risen Christ to change people and start the process of slowly transforming them to the point where they will be glorified and resurrected in a body that will be undeniable. But I get access to see proof of the resurrection in that person's life because the power of sin has been broken, which is why if that's true, Paul can say what he says in verse 12 and 13 when he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. How could he say that if the resurrection doesn't give us the power to do that? That would be a hopeless command, right? You know what, how strong a draw that is. How could we possibly not present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness? a man was risen he defeated the power of sin and so now even the power of sin is broken our relationship with sin has changed but the presence of sin is also under threat it's also being endangered by what he has accomplished and slowly he's rooting that out of our hearts and minds and so we can actually obey by the power of the holy spirit To let not sin reign. Why? Because we're under the reign of grace. It's one of the best reasons to get to know the body of Christ and to battle sin with the body of Christ and to be in close fellowship with the body of Christ. You see evidence of the resurrection. It's wonderful. I don't know if you do this every now and again, but you can find incontrovertible personal proof that Christ rose from the dead and seeing him change you and change other people. And this is exactly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Because there's a connection between the historical event of the resurrection And the diminishing power and the presence of sin. There's a connection between those things. Now, we can be increasingly resurrected through, we call it, sanctification or growing in Christ. So what are the implications of this? Let's think about just for a minute before we move on. Okay, so we're attached to the resurrected Jesus. And because we're attached to the resurrected Christ first, we are slaves to a living Lord. We are slaves to a living Lord. We are not obeying a philosophy. We are not following an ethical system. We are not chasing a tradition that started generations ago in our family. We are serving a living Lord. So that means obedience is personal. And sin is personal because he's risen, he's alive, he's present. See, living righteously is a matter of personal communion with Jesus. It's responding to his nearness. He is more alive than we are. and We commune with him. Charles Hodge, uh, an old, famous, smart guy, said, the only effectual method of gaining victory over our sins is to live in communion with Jesus Christ. It is those who thus look to Christ not only for pardon but for holiness that are successful in subduing sin which the, while the legalist remains its slave. Do we think about our obedience in that way? As a personal response to a personal relationship and communing with a person, a risen person? Or is it, I failed my principles? Do you see the difference? So that's the first implication. If we're attached to the resurrected Christ, we are slaves to a living Lord. The second one is that because we are attached to the resurrected Christ, we can view obedience as God's design for transferring life to us. We can view obedience as God's design for transferring life to us. You'll notice in this text, God is trading out what is dead and destined for destruction with what's alive and lasting. He's constantly trading those things in the life of the believer. He says, this is all happening, this attachment to Jesus and his death and his resurrection, that we might too walk in newness of life. You don't get the sense from this text that God is interested in obedience that is half-hearted and slumped down and uninterested and half-engaged. It's not what he's after. He's trying to give us life. And he's, t- he's trying to take death out of our gripped hands, <laughs> holding on to things that will not last, that will destroy us. And he's trading those things. That's what sanctification is. He's going to give us eternal life. And he starts that process by giving us life through his commands and taking death from us in the form of sin. Another place we find this is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18, when it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we are changed, we are changing, and that's transfer of death, giving us life for our death. Is how we grow. And that's because Christ has been resurrected. The last implication, because we are attached to the resurrected Christ, we can expect victory. This is one of the most encouraging things about this passage to me personally. Is that if we are attached to the risen Christ and He is perfectly holy and alive then God will close the gap between our sinful flesh and His perfect holiness. Right? That has to happen. Think about it. God has made an oath that this is going to happen, that that gap between our sinful flesh and His perfection is going to be closed. And the way we know that that we're attached to him is because not of our willingness, not because of how impressive we are Monday to Friday at this, but because of a historical event that's already occurred. And if Christ is risen and he's perfectly holy and I'm somehow attached to him, then God's got to figure out how to make that work. That's encouraging because sometimes growing, it doesn't feel like anything's happening. And it's a struggle, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and you don't get what's going on all the times. But our full and final deliverance is certain because we are attached to Jesus because of an event that has already happened. And you can hope in that. When you just don't get how God is going like, to make that gap change, you can be assured because of the gospel that he will Our sinful flesh has a shelf life. It is already beginning to fade and die. He is already doing his work in us. There's no option for failure because God has promised it. Wouldn't it be refreshing to approach our obedience in that way? Instead of thinking, well, the odds aren't very good. This is going to (laughs) work. Right? But God has promised. He's bound his name to this arrangement and that because Christ demonstrates power over sin in a historical event, I have reason to expect that he's going to give me victory in it. That makes more sense than being skeptical, doesn't it? Charles Hodge again. As long and as surely as the head lives, so long and surely must all the members live. See, the question is really not, is God going to deliver this? The question is, are we attached? That's really where the enemy, I think, comes in and attacks us. Are you really with him? Are you really attached to him? Are you really attached to the head? So, we are increasingly resurrected because of what Christ has done. We are sanctified. We're changed through that. There's some implications of that. But lastly, we are finally resurrected as well. It's interesting, there's a connection between uh, this idea of being sanctified or being changed and transformed by God in the gospel, and being finally given a resurrection body and kind of permanently changed. And I tried to point to that connection with the phrase, increasingly and finally, because at the end, God just finishes the process, right, of transferring us out of death and into life. And all along the way, our lives conform to that reality, and finally, he finishes it off in glorification. Listen to J.I. Packer, another really smart guy. He says Christians become increasingly Christ like as the moral profile of Jesus is progressively formed in them. And then he says this Sanctification of character is glorification begun. Glorification meaning being given a resurrected body. Sanctification of character is glorification begun. Then the physical transformation that gives us a body like Christ, one that will match our totally transformed character and be a perfect means of expressing it, will be glorification completed. See, there's a connection. And again, we've we got to get into the nitty-gritty of the words and, and how it's phrased in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, past tense, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That looks forward, right, to the future. Verses 8 and 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, past tense, we believe that we will also live with him, future. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, Death no longer has dominion over Him. So again, we have a past, present, and future kind of idea going on. If we're attached to Christ and death no, has no grip on Him, then it has no grip on us by extension. So, the hope of resurrection expands the hope beyond the horizon of this life. It's not just right here and now. It is future but we'll never finally get there until the end, right? Christianity is not merely hope for this life. It's not just wisdom for living now and successful strategies to have a better whatever. Paul says if there's no final horizon, if there's no final eternal life, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is not a strategy for living your 80 years only. That's not what this is. And this hope, I think, sweetens over time. As more things break down, I'm getting a little thinner back here. And I'm getting a little more sore for a little longer. But I'm still young. And I don't know the greatness of this hope in some ways that some of you do. And I'm not relying necessarily on the hope In the same way that some of you are. Because it's not just the hope of a perfectly functioning, never-aging, always-working body. It's also the absence of death and corruption. I love how Andrew Peterson captures it in a song where he describes the actual last time that certain things occur. He says, after the last tear falls, after the last secret's told after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, after the last disgrace, after the last lie to save some face, after the last brutal jab from a poisoned tongue, after the last dirty politician, after the last meal down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison, After the last young husband sails off to join the war. After the last this marriage is over. After the last young girl's innocence is stolen. After the last years of silence that won't let a heart open. There is love. And in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again. We'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love. And the lover of all. And we'll look back on these tears as old tales. Because after the last tear falls, there is love. It never grows old to say that death will be swallowed up in victory. It will never grow old to say that while we're here. Because we are exposed to it and we're, we see it in different forms and in different ways all the time. Whether it's our own Bodies failing. Those we love around us and watching them struggle. And we can be sure that death will be swallowed up in victory because Jesus has had victory over death. The reign of grace will be unchallenged and untainted and there will only be life. Life that is unending and fulfilling both in quality and quantity. This is the promise that awaits every follower of Jesus Christ. What are some implications of this for our life? Well, it, and not only this resurrection and us being attached to Jesus not only changes how we walk or how we live, but it changes how we wait. First implication. Because we are attached to the resurrected Christ, we can be certain of resurrection. That might sound simple, but it's a really big deal. I think Paul words the th- verse 5 very purposefully. He says, "For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." He didn't have to say it that way. But he knows that this hope is tough to hold on to when you're struggling or when you're nearing the end. And thinking about this, if someone were to look at the whole of our lives, 30 trillion years from now, an overwhelming majority of our time in existence will be benefiting from the favor and the glory and the love of the Trinity. And there will be this small slice ever-decreasing slice of our existence that will be marked by crucifixion. But an overwhelming majority will be resurrection life. And that's hard to remember sometimes. But sometimes God gives you the grace to to look above the treetop, right? And see the bigger picture and see the, the horizon. As one author put it, the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. We can be certain of resurrection. Number two, implication. Because we are attached to the resurrected Christ, we can plead with others to trade death for life. See, our certainty in this is directly related to our willingness to talk to other people, I think. Our certain resurrection means that we offer ourselves more freely to crucified living, including enduring the sighs and the groans of the world around us when we talk to them about Jesus and what he's done. It's all a part of crucifixion, but we're advocates for resurrection because it's going to happen. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, it's the Bible's contention that you're holding on to death and forsaking life. You are fighting to keep what won't last and holds no promise, and forsaking life that will never end, which holds every promise. Ponder the words of verse 23 in chapter 6, when it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're attached to a resurrected Christ, then we want people to experience this transfer, just like we do. And lastly, because we are attached to the resurrected Christ, we can endure physical hardship differently. We can endure physical hardship differently. Many of you face physical challenges right now. Illnesses or disease or things that plague you. And every day, every hour, there is a reminder of crucifixion life. Maybe your life isn't what you expected it to be. Maybe you pictured your 50-year-old self as a perfectly physically fit, thriving person, and you find yourself in a very different spot. I can say with confidence from God's Word that God is accomplishing internal realities that will matter for a longer period of time. I can say this not by experience, but by what Paul certainly says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, when he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For those of you struggling in that situation, or those of you who know someone who is, catch your breath by looking at Romans 6. Read Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. And you'll be able to identify with the groaning that creation will have as they await for the revealing of the sons of God, but there will be promise and there will be hope in that, that's real and permanent and lasting and will far outweigh the difficulties you're experiencing now. Folks, we are attached to a risen, resurrected Lord. Lord. And that makes a difference. It makes a difference in how we live and how we walk. It makes a difference in how we wait. This week, let's be meditating on that reality. It doesn't always feel like we're, we're, we're attached to a conquering, uh, resurrected Lord. Our obedience is personal. And we can be discouraged at the hardships and the, and the physical struggles that we're facing, as a people, but we are attached to a resurrected Lord, and we shall certainly be resurrected like He was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are good to us in a multitude of ways that we don't even view as good. You take the the difficulties and the sufferings of this life, and you repurpose them for your glory. You accomplish impossible things, things that would not have otherwise come to pass apart from suffering and difficulty. And you use those things, and you uh, move the pieces and parts around in ways that are mysterious to us at times. And yet, Father, the end result is undeniable. We see that in the crucifixion and the resurrection of your son, which by everyone's confession at that time was a bad idea and yet was the best thing that could have happened. And so God, will you persuade us that we are indeed, if we are in Christ, if we are by faith and by grace attached because of this gospel to Jesus, I pray that that attachment would mean something to us. That you would help us to to meditate and to ponder and to glory and to delight and to rejoice in that indissolvable union. God, this is something that you have done. God, if we had tried to hang on to Christ, we never would have done it. But through your new covenant and through your blood, you attached us to him in a way that cannot be undone. And so I pray you'd give us the strength and the grace to walk in that truth. We are not orphans. We are not detached from our Heavenly Father. We are united to Him. We are near to You. And if we seek You, we will find You. You will draw near to us if we draw near to You. So help us to live in the wake of the resurrection. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.